Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here, back with another weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. Today's guest, gentleman I've known for quite a while, we've had some very interesting conversations off the podcast about energy flows and carbon and carbon storage and where it actually comes from deep down in the soil. We talk about what it means to regenerate land and how you can't fool the birds. With me as always, my co-pilot, CK. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for a special offer from today's guest. So today, we have Russ Conzer. Welcome to the show, Russ. Tell us about yourself and uh, and where you're at these days. Hey, Brian. Um, hey, CK. Hey. Well, I'm, I'm at in uh, Houston, so it's springtime, unlike a couple months ago when it felt like I was in Montana when Texas was Polar freezing. Vortex. <laughs> yeah. Whatever that thing was, we did, we're still recovering from it, but... Uh, yeah, still, uh, you know, rolling down the same road I've been rolling down with um, uh, wearing multiple hats, like many people in the regenerative ag industry, uh, president of the Grassfed Exchange, and uh, so that that takes some time. But you know, I'm an entrepreneur in space myself here with uh, Blue Nest Beef, uh, uh, trying to close that gap between the regenerative producers and uh, consumers uh, nationwide, and kind of making the right thing, the easy thing, right? Bring in high quality beef that's doing good things for the world, um, conveniently to doorsteps. So click online, box magically shows up at your door and you get great, great beef. So yeah, it's a, that's probably, you know, 90% of my focus is, is the, being the entrepreneur now, it's like all other entrepreneurs trying to make it, uh, uh, make it all work and um, make the systems work and tell the story and all that kind of good stuff. So before we dive into Blue Nest, which I definitely want to talk about, um, can I hear some more about your history with uh, energy companies and, and work in that sector? Yeah. Yeah. So um, sorry, because I know, Brian, you know some of that stuff already. So right. I skipped past it. Um uh, but uh, yeah, my own journey into this space is somewhat unusual, I guess, in that uh, I, sp I tell people I spent 30 years taking dead carbon out of the ground, and now I'm going to spend the next 30 putting living carbon back into it. No, oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And um, I'm an engineer originally by training, grew up in the Midwest. I was a child of the 70s, where the issue with energy wasn't climate change and carbon. It was not waiting in gas lines and having your house cold. Um, and um, then the issue was how we're going to have enough of it. Uh, that was my passion. I uh, love science and engineering, chose to go into energy, petroleum, oil and natural gas all around the world. Um, and, and what became relevant in a strange kind of way later was my very, very specific specialty in those early days was 
the instrumentation models, sampling, all that kind of stuff for counting carbon in the deep earth. So I was literally the guy that would show up uh, when we drilled a well and run all the tests and say, you know, we got oil or we don't got oil. <laughs> um, and, but, but then, um, you know, after kind of doing some traditional um, production and management stuff, um, help create a technology venturing business for Shell, um, which I just found wonderful at this intersection of entrepreneurship, technology, um, and um, uh, business, and, uh, and ended up staying the second half of the 30-year career roughly doing that, leading Shell's Angel Stage Breakthrough Energy Investment Group. And through that, um, we had invested anything you can imagine in energy and many things you can't. Um, I was involved in investing the science and technology associated with that kind of stuff, including carbon sequestration. So um, I became immediately intrigued because we had invested in some really, really novel ideas for carbon sequestration, none of which looked terribly compelling. Um, and I happened to be at TED there in 2013 when Alan Savory gave his famous talk about changing how we manage grasslands could sequester carbon. And you know, I kind of filed his bookmark and through totally serendipitous means it came back on the radar a couple of weeks later when someone introduced me to Peter Bick, mm. which similarly become intrigued. So many of the listeners here will know who that is. And um, Carbon Cowboys. Carbon Cowboys. Yep. yep. Filmmaker. So um, and I went looking for data to support this idea of carbon accumulation in soil and I tell people that I can really, it's, it was kind of like a JFK moment for me. I, uh, I can remember where I was, what I was doing, where I was sitting when I opened up a spreadsheet from Christine Jones, who many soul folks will know from Australia. Yep. And the quantity and distribution of organic matter in the soil sample data that she had sent to me was identical to what we called source rocks in oil and gas. That's where carbon comes from in the uh, oil and gas comes from in the deep earth because the sediments were buried millions of years ago um, and then buried and cooked under pressure, temperature, and time. So, and so wait a minute. You're saying that cow poop builds soil carbon and in a couple hundred million years, soil carbon becomes oil? Yeah, except, except for it's not the cow poop really per se. Um, you know, what we now know in terms of soil science is it's that the magic is the microbiology um, you know, the soil carbon under regenerative ranches, uh, Christine really coined that term, the liquid carbon pathway, turns out to be important. I think for a long time, we really didn't understand or appreciate, you know, is it, is it the decomposing plant litter? Is it the cow poop? What is it? And the magic mm -hmm. is it, it's the carbon that's coming out through the roots of the plant into the soil that, that creates the basis of carbon, the primary basis of carbon accumulation in the soil and the, the, the perennial of, carbon pump. It's a perennial carbon pump. And it, and the pump happens precisely because the grazing animals come in, eat off some, not too much, let it rest. And as it's regrowing, that pump gets going. So think, think of a, a cow's mouth as kind of like the pump handle on a pump. Um, yeah. It's literally pulling CO2 out of the air as it goes through that regrowth cycle uh, every time. So, yeah, I mean, that was kind of a profound uh, moment for me. I it was at the time I had already 
decided I was going to retire from Shell and go work with energy entrepreneurs to try to solve the other part of the emissions uh, part of the energy equation that I just felt like the entrepreneurial world was going to do a better job of and a more exciting, have some more exciting things to do out there than on the, in the big corporate side. But I, in the process, I kept one foot still in this kind of soil carbon world, started meeting all these uh, wonderful ranchers uh, and uh, farmers. And um, I, t I tell people it, it started to remind me of what renewable energy looked like about 30 years ago, where like 30 years ago, there were no wind turbines in Texas. There were no, or Iowa or anything like that. And the only person who had a solar panel was your crazy Uncle Harry who wanted to live off the grid yeah. in Idaho, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then- uh, the Do you feel personally attacked, CK? Okay, my husband's, my husband's from Idaho, Russ. So 100%, uh, no, his family are like, they are preppers. Uh, they have right. a freeze dryer. So 100%, we own it. It's okay. 30 years ago, solar energy on the roof. Am I right there? Or yeah, we... come to our house. If you yeah. doomsday, we'll be we'll be prepped. We're ready. Yeah, no, which is awesome, right? So the, <laughs> so the people that do that, to, to take that pioneering lead are so fundamentally important. Mm -hmm. So crazy Uncle Harry ought to deserve the credit for getting Absolutely. that kind of started. But in order for it to actually make a difference, it's got to scale, right? So how do we yes. scale it? And this is where entrepreneurs and commercial business people come in. They try to figure out how do we make this go big, right? So, um, you know, it was the entrepreneurs that came in and said, how do we turn this into, you know, something that can make financial returns? There's a, a famous founder of one of the early solar companies by the name of Jigger Shaw. And he said, I, I can get up. You know, if I'm really good at fundraising, I might be able to attract a billion dollars of philanthropic money to solve a big problem that helps the planet. But if I can make that idea make money, I can attract a trillion dollars of capital. Um, and if, you know, to me, it applies here as well to this other half of the carbon equation. If, if we can make regenerative farming economically attractive for all the participants in that cycle, that's how we're going to regenerate landscape. Not because somebody in Washington passes a law that says you got to, you must, you know, farm regeneratively, or you can't do X. You can't legislate um, our way into this. In my view, legislation may be important. It may follow. There may be incentives. There may be all kinds of stuff. But I really think it's farmers and people how to trying to figure out how to market farm products. They're going to make regenerative agriculture work. So. There you go. That's um, that. That's kind of the backstory on this stuff, and then and then later down the road, um, you, you know, my own story, you know, became an entrepreneur myself here in the space along with other folks. So it, it kind of has that effect on people, uh, su sucking you in once you see the possibilities, right? Yep. <laughs> They're gravity, not suction, yeah. gravity. Yeah, and for what it's worth, you know, I'll I'll, I'll save people the boredom here. But um, um, I, I, as an energy guy, I tell people I'm just still in the energy business. I'm just in the biological oh, absolutely. business. So, yeah. Um, can I can I ask too? Sure. How do you answer the question um, when people say, you know, we don't want to enable the polluters to keep polluting? You know, when we're talking yeah. about like soil carbon stuff, I, I think it's really just not that simple because everything takes energy. 
And it's just what kind of type of energy are we talking about? And I'm curious how you kind of handle that conversation because you probably have that a lot more often than I ever will. And it's a long conversation. Usually involves a glass of wine. Yeah. Um, um, Love it. Well, everybody likes sound bites these days and everybody wants everything to be black and shortened. Yeah. Short and sweet. Right. I don't know. We're having pretty good luck with 90 minute podcasts. So yeah. Awesome. Just (laughs) dive into it, man. Yeah, no, well, um, and, and uh, you know, happy to, to follow up um, with stuff. The dirty little secret of the climate challenge that we face mm-hmm. um, is that even if we were able to magically cut our emissions to zero today, we still got a problem. That there's an imbalance of carbon in the atmosphere. See, there's one of, one of the things that people like to say is, you know, CO2 is a pollutant. It's not true at all. Um, carbon is one of the most fundamental things that makes life go. on. Mm-hmm. The, um, what we have is an imbalance problem. We have too much carbon in the air where it's a liability and not enough carbon in the soil where it's an asset. Um, and even some of our language in this space um, is, is a uh, problem because... Um, the word sequestration implies that we want to take carbon, lock it up in a vault and hide it away from causing harm. It's not what we're doing with regenerative farming at all. We're taking no. carbon and we're putting it back to work as a part of the living cycle of life in the soil. So it's kind of like money being invested in a new economy that's carbon driven instead of money um, yeah. sitting over here as a you know toxic representation of imbalance. So what I, what I tell people CK therefore is, we need to simultaneously reduce emissions as fast as we can. And we need to accelerate the uptake of carbon that's already in the air as fast as we can. So we have to do both. And so absolutely correct. We cannot use the fact that we're taking up carbon as an excuse to keep pumping it out as fast as we can, but we have to do both together. Now, how do we do do both together and how do we make these things work? You know, it's going to take a lot of learning and experimenting, um, including with, you know, not only on the farm, but through the whole business cycle of stuff. So, um, you know, it's one of these things where there's a simple solution, um, which just says, you know, um, cut all the emissions. Unfortunately, it's not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Um, And of course, um, you know, maybe one of the things we, talk about here if you you want to go there that the the carbon stuff is really fundamental i mean carbon really is kind of the currency of life on planet earth and solar energy is what powers that Mm -hmm. Um, but the benefits of regenerative agriculture extend way beyond carbon you know there's i I think the whole community is really beginning to appreciate um uh, this concept of carbon as a co-benefit along with oh yeah bird habitat, water, warmer prosperity, um, healthy, more nutritious food. Um, And and so even though I came in through this carbon door, it's the one that I had the background in. It's the one that hooked me, the one that grabbed me. I think it's really, really important. Um, It's uh, it's not the totality of the picture. So um, yeah, Um, there you go. Any of that makes sense at all? I mean, I, I'm going to oh, avoid yeah. going down the, 
I just I, I I agree with that. I think it's not a reductionist mindset like we talk yeah. about. It's more systems right. thinking, and I yeah. think that's the shift that I'm trying to get other people to to change. Is we're not trying to reduce something. We're we're working in a system. Yeah, we're working in a system to get the system back in balance again. Absolutely. I'm, I did a I did a blog post last year trying to weave some of this big picture stuff together. Um, and um, I mean, that's really what it is, is you're trying to get that earth system. If if you kind of, and again, I'm going to really resist the temptation to go down the scientific rabbit hole, but the solution, there, there's a great quote from Eisenhower that says something like, if, if I find I can't solve the problem, I make the problem bigger until I reach a scale where I can see the fundamental dimensions of the problem. And he said it much more eloquent than that, but the, the gist of it is, you know, zoom out so you can see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, with regenerative agriculture, if I zoom all the way out to the outer edge of the Earth's atmosphere and I look at planet Earth and all the life that sits inside of it, what I see is a system that has this overwhelmingly abundant flow of energy coming from the sun, a nuclear reactor billions of miles away, right? Um And the role of life on Earth is to capture as much of that solar energy as possible. Um, And and that's what plant life does. And then the rest of life on Earth, which is you and me and microbes and all the other stuff, is cycling that energy over and over again. Effectively, what we're doing is dissipating that incoming solar energy. And um, when when I I, I did a factoid early on in my grass-fed exchange thing, when I wrote a blog, I like to pull out little things. Mm. If, if, um, and I kind of added up how much U.S. cropland was barren for how much of the year when it could have been growing a cover crop or something else. Um, And I added up how much energy might have been caught in the plant material of that cover crop or... Any, anything else that was uh, uh, could have been growing at the time. And I was surprised to find that the amount of solar energy that doesn't get captured by a growing plant on bare soil uh, during off seasons on farmland is about exactly the same as the total amount of energy we produce from coal oil and natural gas every year combined in this country. So it's a massive energy waste. Those are big, scary numbers. It's a yeah. So the, the fact that something isn't growing when it ought to be growing. And you, of course you can look at satellite photos. And I, well, you know, yeah. Anytime you fly over, like I was flying to Idaho right. this weekend and yeah. I was like, you know, I cringe now because now I understand it a little better. And I'm like, right. Oh, look at all this bare soil. It's like being nude. Like it's like cover your soil. It's, naked earth. it's exactly yeah. what it is. And yet you can see that along the edges, you know, we got better and better at plowing fence line to fence line, right? But there's still fence lines, there's still creeks. You can see that where we haven't thrown in a corn or soybean field, that there is life growing. Um, so, um, yeah, it's um, it's kind of uh, crazy to think that these are the scale of numbers. But I think that's the opportunity for regenerative agriculture, right? Whether it's in the ranching sector, in the farming sector, how do we manage lands so that we can increase the amount of solar energy that they capture in this cycle of life. You know, it's kind of a Lion King thing, right? You know, (laughs) except for it doesn't involve a little cute cub. It's, 
it's this complexity of sorry for the dog, but um, it's okay. We have dogs not too. Unusual in the Zoom era, I know. Um, no, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's um, you know it, it, it's learning. You know what real regenerative farming heroes here doing this space is they you know, it's really fun to watch, right? You know, they're just, they're observational learners, right? You know, Brian, I remember, uh, you know, I mean, you've, you've been a pioneer doing stuff with like fire. Um, and, and I think last year, year before you started seeing the, some beavers show back up on your property, oh, yeah. again, right? Oh, they, they've been there about five, six years. So okay, I just, so I just really started kind of telling people about them last year. Uh, and, and I think you start paying attention to them too, right? And it's like, what are the, what role do they serve? What important things? And I, I think this is the thing that's really cool with the people out on the landscape is they go from following a set of instructions they got from their local land grant extension office and they start to watch that cycle again and they're constantly asking themselves what can I do to help that cycle um, flow better so um, it's pretty cool and yet you know the things I get most involved with are still the science and technology side and the commercial delivery side Um, you know in my romantic world maybe someday I'll be a farmer but uh, yeah probably stick to the things I'm best at I guess (laughs) There's there's definitely a need for people that are connecting regenerative producers to consumers that are that are asking for the product. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a, a key uh, missing link. It's one of these things where we have to figure out how to scale, right? Um, I, I, I really wish we would evolve to a world where every consumer knew their farmer personally, knew their kids. You know. and, you know, that would be nice. And there will be some of that, but I think the majority of Americans will go to their grocery store or order a box online or whatever. And we have to, I think the, the, the challenge of the next year of regenerative agriculture is figuring out how do we bring those things together? How do we scale um, in a way that still allows those consumers and farmers that do care about and want to form those intimate relationships to thrive and, and, and work. But we, you know, if we don't figure out how to, you know, back to the renewable energy thing, um, the language we used 20 years ago was how do we reach what we called grid parity. Grid parity was the margin where coal energy and natural gas energy trades for electricity in the market. We passed that in about 2012, 13 now. So that's why, coal plants in Texas are continued to be shut down because they're just not economically uh, competitive anymore. Um, and I, I think what we have to do with regenerative agriculture here on the meat side, at, at least is reach, reach feedlot parity in the long run. Um, and we're only going to do that if we figure out how to scale some of these systems. Now that doesn't really mean like we have to have mega ranches everywhere. You know, it's not like create the pasture equivalent of CAFOs everywhere, but we do have to build systems that, um, you, you know, can aggregate supply, process that supply, package that supply, market that supply. Um, and the quality it, from the producer has to be also be consistent. consistent. Yeah, that's a big. Yeah, it one. is. It's one of the things mm-hmm. I've learned here with our Blue Nest experience. It's a it's a privilege to work with pioneers like Todd Churchill. Um, he's one of the first grass fed beef companies when he founded Thousand Hills Cattle almost twenty years ago now. Um, 
and and then processors like uh, we work with uh, primarily with Mike Lawrence and Lawrence Meats in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, which many people know from Micah Pollins, um, you know, because yes, yeah, Omnivore's Dilemma, mm-hmm. an early pioneering ethical meat processor, um, and you know, you know, Brian, it's not only having that quality. One of the things I've learned by working with Todd and Mike in this kind of stuff is you have to honor, respect, uh, uh, retain, and even enhance the quality all the way from the soil to the plate, right? At any step along that way, if you do something not right, you're, you're doing the, the food a disservice. Um, and, you know, that'll show up as, you know, uh, you know, not tender, not flavorful, other things like that. And we can't be surprised if consumers don't buy a product you know, that, um, that, that doesn't taste good. It didn't tend mm-hmm. I mean, I, uh, I, I've been doing only regenerative meats in my family's house for almost 10 years now. Um, and, um, by, you know, becoming an entrepreneur myself in this space, I, I recognize how the pros really, you know, they know what they're doing <laughs> and yeah. we need more pros. We, at, at every stage of the regenerative life cycles, all, like I said, all the way from the pasture to the plate. So let's talk some more about blue nest beef. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys, you guys do a box product, like a box subscription product. Um, I want you to talk about your Audubon certification, but first um, I tried some Bobo links. Awesome. And they're delicious. So and I see them there on the table. So let's talk. <laughs> what are Bobo links, Russ? Bobo links uh, <clears throat> is the convergence of our mission with a, uh, a wonderful product that gives us the opportunity to get out of the freezer and into the pantry. It's a naturally fermented 100% grass fed beef snack stick. It's made from the same Audubon certified the, the beef that comes from Audubon certified bird friendly land. Um, but it's preserved with a process of natural fermentation, very much like a sourdough bread, a kombucha. Oh, or a yogurt. I'm already sold. Yeah. <laughs> I love kombucha. Um, yeah. that, that natural fermentation does two things for you. It gives it that extra tang. Yep. Um, but it also means you get all the preservation without all the junk. Right. So there's no weird fats or chemicals in there. Um, and, and when you bite into it, well, I don't know, Brian, I don't want to put words in your mouth. what do you think? I, I, is it tender? Yeah, I think they're good. I think they're good. Um, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's a meat stick product, so it's going to be processed. It's not like you're eating a piece, piece of beef jerky. That's a slice of, that's right. Oh, a thing. Oh, I see. So, yeah. you know, that there is, there is going to be that, that kind of processed, uh, consistency to it. Um, yeah. There, there was nothing about the bubble link that I that I found objectionable. I mean, they smelled good, they tasted good, they had good mouth feel. They didn't leave my mouth feeling greasy, um, right. like some others do. Um, good, pleasant spice, and you know, tasted good. And I, and I feel good about eating them because you know a lot of the other, you know, like holistic regenerative grass fed bars. Well. Where are you sourcing your Where are you sourcing your meat from? And you kind of get down to it. And if you're not eating a, right. if it's not an epic bar, you're probably eating Tasmanian or New Zealand beef that's been imported. And that's the exact yeah, wrong thing to do because I want to support somebody locally doing that, not somebody in New Zealand doing that. Yeah, uh, you used exactly the right words. Um, 
Brian, thanks. Because um, we the, the real aim of Bobolinks is to indeed help you feel good about eating meat sticks again. Um, and that feel good is both kind of, you know, it's nourishing and flavorful. You don't have the junk in it. You know, the fermentation part's good, but then you can feel good about helping the farmers, helping the birds, helping all the other stuff that's a part of the regenerative ag stuff. So, you know, we're pretty excited about it. We just introduced it um, um, in March. Um, so just a little over a month ago. So that means one of you, you're one of the first customers. What the, the package that, that you got, what I just held up there is really the first stuff uh, off the press where uh, the feedback has been incredibly positive and we're working now to figure out how labels and packaging are, are expensive. And, you know, if, if a, somebody, yeah, huge cost, if somebody's turned off by your current label, they're not your customer anyway. Yeah. But, um, you know what we need to do, you know, back to this, but it needs to be appealing. Yeah, exactly. It needs to well, be eye catching to somebody that doesn't, isn't already looking for that product. Yeah. You need a package that tells a story. We, we, um, you know, maybe here's where I connect in the broader Blue Nest Beef thing. The whole idea behind Blue Nest Beef, because all this stuff, you know, carbon, water, all this re regenerative is a multisyllabic word, right? <laughs> um, it's complicated, right? The, the, the big idea here um, is to create a business that sits at the intersection of a legitimate conservation goal, the bird habitat as well as something that's understandable and meaningful to consumers, right? So um, who, who doesn't like a pretty bird singing in the backyard, right? People can get their mind around that pretty good. If I can, if I can start a conversation with you about what regenerative is by saying it's good for birds and then lead you into a story that, about all the other wonderful good things it does, um, you know, the hypothesis of the business is that's a, that's a potentially viable pathway into the consumer mindset with regeneration story. Um, and it, as a frozen beef business, um, you know, we have to, in, in the core of our business, we have to ship a box and keep it cold and make sure it survives the UPS and FedEx truck and all, all that kind of stuff. But as a, as a snack stick um, that's shelf stable, and it doesn't it's have nice. to be cold, mm -hmm. right? you know, now I can start shipping in mail pouches and we may someday, you know, get into bricks and mortar retail. We can touch consumers at a much lower price point and give them an even easier bridge into this regenerative story. That's kind of the strategic logic behind the Bobolinks thing. Now that the, the name is because many people won't know that if you know this, if you're not a birder, but the bobolink is one of the more endangered grassland birds. So I don't know if, if any of them stop in Kansas at your place, Brian, on the way I, up. But I, I don't know. I think they're a little more eastern, a little more northern typically from you. They, they'll migrate through potentially here literally in the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, but they, they start their breeding generally kind of Nebraska, Iowa, and parts, you know, up into Minnesota and, and Southern Canada, but they winter down in, um, uh, in South America. Birds are so darned amazing. It, you know, I've always kind of been kind of this, just like most Americans, birds are pretty, you know, that's really cool. But one of the things that getting into this business has done for me is like, no, birds are freaking amazing. <laughs> you know, they, they really, they really are, you know, these little tiny birds will, 
you know, fly all the way to the other end of the earth uh, uh, because that's what they're wired to do and come back again. And what's, what's especially important and true in the regenerative context is, you know, I can, I can fool the auditor. um, I can comply with all kinds of rules for regeneration, but if you're grazing in a way where the birds are coming back to your land, you know, you're grazing in a way that's good. You birds are like, um, the most objective judge, no, I'd say all life really. Um, you know, if you, if you want to know what pastures regenerative, go out there and see how many grasshoppers, dragonflies, butterflies, and birds. Right. Biodiversity. Biodiversity is your best index. I think birds are really handy for us humans because they're big enough to see. And, you know, we, we appreciate, um, um, looking at them. So, I mean, that, that, that's really the, the, the thing we're shooting for here is trying to, you know, the, the entrepreneur in me is always thinking, how, how do we take this thing that's really complicated? And I'll sit down and talk science with folks any day. But what I really need is American consumers, because they, they really are the missing link. I, I, yeah. I don't know what you guys think, but I think on the supply side, just, you know, this was coming up on... Well, it was almost exactly eight years ago when I stumbled into this space. I think the regenerative producer side continues to grow strongly. Um, and But what we need um, is, you know, what we call more thoughtful leaders, people who give a damn, people who think about where their food comes from. Um, or, organic was kind of a, you know, it was a really important intermediate trend. It was about farming in a way that um, well, people thought it was doing less bad for the environment and it might have been, but you know, what they're really buying is something that didn't have toxins in it for them. Right. Um, but you know, the dirty little secret of farmers, of course, is that, uh, some organic industrial organic operations can be just as disastrous as it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. It can be yeah. really bad. Right. Um, and then we can start talking about soil erosion and, well, it's, you know, they have a lot of rules. And so if they only listen to the rules and everything else, they do whatever they want. Yeah, so. back to the bird thing. I think if you if if you do this in a way where the birds are coming back, it means you're doing mm-hmm. good things. And I, I've, um, I think one of the first regenerative ranches I was on, a part of their land they had just taken up from a prior organic farm. And, you know, it was basically sterile. It, it was tilled more than the non-organic stuff because the tillage was the alternative to chemicals. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, regenerative, I mean, everybody has their own definition. When I get into the science, I can get really technical on some of that definition. But I think to me, regenerative agriculture is growing food and fiber in a way that allows the land to catch more sunshine tomorrow than it did yesterday. Um, and, and if we kind of adopt that mindset, whereas, um, you know, the production system where every acre is trying to figure out, well, and, it, and it's, it's not just tomorrow because I, I can go out and I can cheat tomorrow, but I can't cheat next year, right? Uh, you've got to think longer term time cycles. If we're, if we're farming and producing food in a way that's increasing the capacity of an acre to grow more and better food, we're heading in the right direction. And the birds are going to come back. I can just tell you that. The, the, the thing that's really fascinating about birds is they're incredibly responsive to habitat changes. Um, and in the case of pastures, grassland birds 
are uh, incredibly specific. Uh, in fact, when we started the carbon sinking project, when I was still in Shell, we called it Project Metal Art because I was from Nebraska and the state bird was Metal Art. I wasn't really much deeper than that. And, and simply because as I was trying to decide what the name of the project, I learned that metal larks um, uh, like to build their nests in small indentations in pastures like the hoof prints of mm, yeah. bison and cattle. Um, and they also like to have um, varying topography, uh, varying a mosaic, a tapestry of different grass heights, right? If you have a pasture that's kind of mowed to the ground, you might have some killdeer running around or some of these birds that like the the shallow grass, but different birds like different kinds of situations, right? Uh, Max Alliger in Missouri gave a talk early on in my journey and just helped me see that, you know, birds are very responsive to habitat changes. And I think that's really what happened when you're, when you've got these pulsing, you know, episodic grazing things moving around from paddock to paddock, right? Which you, you've got this constantly evolving tapestry of ecosystems on your land. And that creates all kinds of different habitats for birds. Um, one, one of, I mean, there's just so many farmers that are inspiring uh, here now. Um, in a couple of weeks, a farmer in Iowa by the name of Phil Specht, who has a particular passion for birds, is holding a, a field day um, that I'm, I'm hoping to make it up to. What day is that? You have an interesting Phil, Phil Specht. What day? Uh, May 8th. May 8th. Well, that's going to be, uh, right now I have you scheduled for release on the 10th. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, people will watch it on Facebook after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> do look at Phil because just having a little bit of Facebook conversation with Phil here a couple of weeks ago on, you know, what is the optimum relationship between grazing animals and bird habitat? And it are, you know, there, there, there's some interactions and they're probably seasonal. Um, you know, what you're doing during breeding season when the, in his case, the bobolinks show up on his farm, which is why he's holding it on May 8th, kind of right about that time. Um, and, um, you know, but, but how do you graze? And I, again, I mean, you can go to conferences, you can watch YouTube videos, but I, I think you can learn a lot by watching the animals and how they're interacting with your landscape as well. And, and birds are just incredibly adaptive. And, and look, grassland birds, um, we've lost about 53% in the last 50 years. I like to remind people that Rachel Carson, we're, we're, we're talking, so we're recording this on Earth Day. Um, and Rachel Carson is famous for inspiring the first Earth Day. By Silent Spring, right? Silent Spring, the book, yeah. right? And getting people to realize the hazards of DDT. Well, you know, so we got rid of DDT. But, you know, we came up with other chemicals. We just, the, uh, we just went to something that was slightly less bad. Yeah. And, and, and the real problem, DDT to me is as much a symptom as a cause, right? It's the linear industrial mindset that says, I'm going to manage, control, conquer the natural system instead of working with it. Um, and so I think, you know, when I, I can say, hey, we've lost 50% of grassland bird populations in North America after the first Earth Day started, after Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, hmm, we may not have solved that problem, <laughs> right? And then we get some species like bobolinks are down about 61% in the last 50 years. So they're a little bit worse than average for other grassland birds. So, and, and yet we see that when we change grazing management strategies, the birds come back pretty quickly. Um, Brian, I don't know what your story is on biodiversity beyond lesser beavers. prairie chickens and kit foxes. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's where we got. 
that's uh, that's what I've seen is is lessers and enough lessers that there were either it was either a swift fox or a kit fox. I mean, there's no way to tell unless you take one apart. You know, you get your hands on it, and take it apart, and we're right on the line for habitat for both. Mm-hmm. So it could have been either, but you know what? What's that kind of fox eat? Well, it likes to eat a lot of grassland birds. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. So yeah, we're talking about birds and bird friendly habitat, and here I am bragging about having foxes. Well, that is something to brag about because that means that there's a healthy enough bird population yes. to support predators. Exactly. Yep. And you know, so the the birds kind of come and go. I mean, lessers they move yeah. lex around all the time. I may not have them today. I may have them next week. Mm-hmm. Then they may leave. That's okay. I'm just going to keep maintaining the habitat and doing the best job I can. If you build it, they will come. That's what's happened with beavers. Yeah, I think that's right. And then the beavers build habitat too. <laughs> the beavers build habitat for other species that come in right. and help help habitat. That's exactly right. So, I mean, I, we're still early in this journey, but I think animals and habitat is one possible pathway where consumers can feel like they're participating in doing something good, right? You know, there's been things, you know, other efforts to connect biodiversity and habitat to consumer products. Um, now, I think it's hard to um, maintain the integrity of those things. It's one of the things I really, really respect. I think National Audubon Society has created a really good protocol. It's practical and understandable. It's not based on a bunch of rules that you can meet the letter, but fail the intent. <laughs> um, and importantly, you know, there's a couple, there's, there's some really important dimensions for farmers that it's entire, it's not a pay to play type thing for the producers, right? So the Audubon Society pays full burden of cost of uh, managing the system. They work with every farm has to have a four purpose written habitat management plan. You identify the species that are associated with your particular habitat that, you know, you can graze a little bit differently to keep an eye on. And then there's, you know, other things on environmental sustainability and, and general grazing, you know, pasture based protocols and things like that, but they're kept pretty simple and understandable. Um, and, um, uh, you know, you know, hopefully, you know, practical and useful for farmers um, and meaningful to consumers. And it's certainly why um, we chose to go that way. Um, I, you know, there, there may be multiple ways to, there will be multiple ways to do this kind of stuff in time, but kind of this focus on biodiversity um, using the face of bird on the bigger story of regeneration was our, our choice. So if somebody wants to get a hold of some Bubba links or if they're interested in Blue Nest, what, where can we go for that? Just go to bluenestbeef.com. Okay, great. And now, the million-dollar question is, mm-hmm. if a producer is out there that wants oh, to yeah. get involved with Autobahn and be certified bird-friendly, where do you start? Probably the best place to start, um, frankly, is directly with the National Audubon Society folks, because the first step is to get certified. You have to be certified to be eligible and, and then um, uh, having quality genetics and performance on those genetics becomes important if you want to sell your product through Blue Nest. But you don't have to sell your product through Blue Nest. Um, 
Um, we're one of many market partners with the National Audubon Society. Um, and, um, you know, even if you, you're not selling a fully finished animal product, I mean, there's, it's not just for finished animals, right? I mean, you can have your farm and ranch certified uh, just as a producer. But yeah, every, uh, every state has a designated coordinator. Uh, so here, Texas, Oklahoma is Thomas Schrader. He's based in Austin at Schroeder. Sorry, I mispronounced the German, German pronunciation sometimes. Uh, but um, every state, uh, um, uh, you know, has a coordinator, but you can uh, go to audubon.org slash ranching and uh, find out more about the protocols and how to, you know, how to locate the, uh, the ranching coordinator in your state. Um, I think the current number is um, actually only 13 states. It's basically Montana and the Dakotas down into Texas. Um, the easternmost state for the moment is Missouri, but I think um, with support from a recent USDA grant, the program is gonna be expanding into two or three more states here fairly soon. Um, I do hope that one day in the not too distant future, Audubon will be certifying ranchers um, in all states. But um, because it's a, it, it takes quite a time and resource commitment from Audubon, it's not something you can just sign up for everywhere. They have to have staff that can work the program. And, and so they've started where the grassland birds are most important, and that's the former prairies and Great Plains of North America, right? So um, Montana, North and South Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado, um, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, um, Texas, Missouri, New Mexico um, are definitely, they've got California in there now, Nevada. Um, um, I think there's a real effort to step it up in California um, lately, a lot of interest from multiple directions. Um, can't recall some of the other uh, boundaries. We're, we're currently at Blue Nest. Um, th th there's about uh, three and a half million acres now in the Audubon program. We're we've purchased beef from land constituting about 200,000 of those acres. So there's way more acres outside of wow. our supply chain. We feel really good about what we're doing, but we've got, um, you know, there's 650 million acres of pasture land in the United States. There's a long, long way to go yet <laughs> uh, to, to, to help, you know, move that along. And what we hope to do with the blue nest thing is if we can get consumers engaged in this story to pay a premium price for a premium product that is truly premium, then we can pay the ranchers more, right? And that's how we're going to get more acres in this program, not because we guilt a bunch of ranchers into yep. doing something or regulate a bunch of ranchers into doing something. No, I want, you know, we show up at the farm gate um, with a, a bigger check for a higher quality product that is genuinely higher quality and is also doing good things for the world because that's a part of our brand and what we're doing. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's our foray into the space to, uh, you know, try to make a difference here with what I call better beef with a bigger purpose. So. I, I think it's well thought out and genius, honestly, Russ. I think, you know, like I said, they taste great. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where we started, um, you know, even with our frozen beef business. And this was Todd's uh, genius, frankly, and I only came to appreciate it after time here was, you know, it's it's not only high quality forage in the pasture that's built on high quality soil that's getting healthier 
It's how you process every step of the way. It's how you, you know, we have a proprietary wet aging process um, that, that Todd developed over the years that I think really adds a lot to the beef itself um, as well. But, and if you want to compete um, in the marketplace and be, you know, the truly delightful steak that people want to go for and pay premium price for, you got to do the whole thing right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as simple as just saying, I put my cows behind well, the fence. And... Especially if, if it's premium product, you're going to have a certain consumer that's buying that and they they yeah. want those things. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, you know, over time, like I said, I, I hope that we can scale this up and build all the business systems and production systems that help us reach what I called feedlot parity. Um, but, you know, let's start with what we can do, you know, um, the, you know, uh, HD TVs started out as a luxury item and now they're much more common. Electric cars right. are now on course to uh, kind of take over the market. Um, and they started as a, a fancy toy for movie stars, venture capitalists and fight, fighter pilots. Right. And, and now, you know, I routinely see electric vehicles on the streets of Houston here where I live. So I, I don't um, see them a whole lot. They probably don't get too many of them in Wichita. No, but you, Rural during Kansas. Grass-Fed Exchange in California, Brian, got to rent a I rented Tesla. a Tesla. I rented a yeah. Model 3 when right, I was I remember that. So, so you had access. Oh, right? it's phenomenal car. Exactly. Like, I'm just waiting for somebody to build a truck that'll replace my diesel work truck and can do yeah. the work that my diesel work truck does all day. I mean, haul bales, feed cows go through the pasture, haul calves to town, haul feed home. You know, it, it, it's got to do it. I haven't I, seen I, one yet. It, it, it'll come, but I wouldn't wait. It would, it's, it'll be low on the list. It'll come last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the actual truck that would do some real work and benefit real people is going to be built last because they're going to build the shiny thing that everybody's going to want to buy shiny first. thing for the suburban um, thing. And he actually, I mean, of course, Elon Musk gets all the attention with that thing that looks like a stealth fighter. Yep. But, um, you know, other people are doing interesting things. What I think will come before the farm truck is the recreational outdoors truck, right? It's a four-wheel off, off-road weekender type truck a company called Rivian that I'm pretty intrigued with is doing some really creative things with their electric truck. Um, so all these things are, you know, entrepreneurs solving problems, right? How do they're all great examples. How do I take something and package it and produce it and sell it in a way that works in the market to get that product out there? Um, and real, and, and they're not static, right? I mean, I, 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 I wish our beef, we're cheaper today, but it's not. And I'm going to yeah. start with the, the high quality premium stuff as I work my way there. And I'm going to work with thoughtful leaders, um, you know, and, and sometimes you find those in, in um, strange and unusual yeah. places. And one of the things I've learned here in the Blue Nest journey is um, honestly, I'd rather work with a thoughtful flexitarian who cares about their food than someone who just wants a cheap hamburger. Yeah. Cause I can, I can have a conversation with someone who's being thoughtful, someone who just says, the heck with it. You know, I'll take cheap at any price. Just want the cheapest option. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, I hope that someday it's the, the, the cheapest option and exactly you know, energetically yeah. it can be, we've, we've done some modeling that suggests that there's a real 
there's a real opportunity to go there. That's not where we're at today. So, right. I'm glad you bring that up though, because that's something that I think about all the time is you think about low income communities and how they purchase their beef or even Mm -hmm. just meats in general. Mm -hmm. And they buy the cheap stuff that probably isn't good for them. And we talk about people who the reason that they get into regenerative um, is because they had health issues, like either a thyroid condition or some kind of gastric issue. And they found out when they are on more of a holistic diet and eating regenerative beef that has solved that for them. And I'm like, wow, how do we, how do we get this to these people who cannot afford to do that? Because I almost think of it as like an elitist way to eat, which I know that's not true, but, but like my family, you know, they would, they were, when they see what I pay for my, my beef, they're like, you're crazy. Like if they really, if I told them. Yeah. Yeah, but I would I, I tell people, you know, it's it's a classic pay me now or pay me later. Exactly. Type stuff. And so that's I, what I say. I said I'm I'm in this for the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I I was one of those you know, quasi sickly kids. I knew my Walgreens pharmacist by name when I was five years old. Um okay. and um but I'm proud to say I haven't taken a prescription drug in um more than ten years now. Wow. And there's nothing but regenerative meat in my freezer my question marks in this house are the broccoli and brussels sprouts you know and i don't eat any of that processed carb crap um either right you know yeah honestly if i could get people eating meat first and get them off that processed carb first you know then we can start fixing diabetes and then we can move them on to the better tonight you know, I'm sure y'all are familiar with the work of uh, Fred Provenza. Um, you know, a lot of people in um, uh, grass-fed uh, meat, you know, the, early on they get caught up in omega-3s and then it's conjugated linoleic acids. And, you know, I personally think the evidence uh, is even more important on some of the fat-soluble vitamins. But Fred, I think what he's really doing for us is helping us appreciate that what we eat is a whole lot more than a few ingredients we can put on a label. Yeah. There's, there's just so much in there that, you know, you know, maybe by the time our grandkids are <laughs> phytochemicals and terpenes and yeah, exactly. nano compounds that we don't even have names for. Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so how does, how does this all play together in a system we're even in our diet. I mean, I try to modulate our own diet, you know, uh, eat, eat more fruits in the summer and fall because they're seasonal and, you know, yes, uh, I, carbs and yeah. in the eating winter. seasonal, right. I, that's something that I don't do. Yeah. I admit. No, I think it's a part of the system. Yeah. All well, right. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just think we have so much to learn, but back yes. to your thing, CK, right. How do we, how do we uh, build a system? You mean I shouldn't be eating strawberries in December? No, <laughs> no, it's uh, potatoes, uh, right? Maybe Thanksgiving is still okay. <laughs> uh, and, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, th- this is a part of the problem, right? Those strawberries in December are there because we've got this industrial global economy that brings them in from strange places and so on. And, uh, you know, I get only, you know, it's not just meats. I feel good about my honey. I, you know, we don't use sugar. We use honey in this house for anything. And I, uh, I'm sure you guys know Jonathan Cobb, one of my fellow grass. Yeah. Fellow. I love him. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he has a, <clears throat> a honey farmer that has some 
hives on his farm, but their, their main uh, outlet is up there in the same town where Jonathan is. And I buy all my honey from him and he, oh my God, it's just, I, I, I think honey's toxic in the grocery store. I wouldn't buy honey from a grocery store. I liked local honey for my allergies, especially because yeah. I'm new to Kansas. And so it's like, a, you know, I have to, <laughs> I have to yeah. do it. it. It became a part of our um, uh, COVID protocol. You know, we generally eat healthy, but as we're trying to make sure that we stayed uber healthy with the COVID, COVID thing. And so far it's worked. Um, yeah. Um, that and elderberry syrup, it might be a weirdo, but I love no, the, no, the I elderberry think syrup. There's, <laughs> there's, a, there's some basis for the elderberry syrup stuff, but you know, we you know doubled up on our grass-fed liver rations and we- uh, There you go. I started taking a spoonful of extra honey a couple of times a week, a raw honey. And you, you know, you're just- That's my to, breakfast, two spoonfuls yeah. of honey. <laughs> Well, it's good. I mean, there's whole um, civilizations that, you know, based on that stuff. What they didn't do is lace it with, you know, high fructose corn syrup and other artificial things. Again, I wouldn't, unless I had a spectrometer, I wouldn't buy honey from a grocery store these days because they don't know that it's really honey anymore. Um, And, uh, you know, there's been exposés, you know, not not counting the highly dramatized um, you know documentary trend that we're in, but somebody went in and did some genetic testing on the seafood counter in some major grocery chains and found out that everything that was labeled what it said wasn't really what it said. <laughs> you know that there's there, there's just our economy creates a lot of incentives for for fraud um, and for cheap. Um, and it feels good right up until it doesn't. Like in our space this year, right? Regenerative, the world, at least for a few moments, became visible to people that this very highly concentrated meat production system and processing system may have some problems, right? So, right, you know, last spring when suddenly the the packing plants were the first outbreaks and had to shut down and kill animals, for some people that was a wake-up call, right? It's like, now a lot of people gone back to normal, um, but I think more people have found their way into regenerative food and putting healthier food on their family's tables. Um, I think that gives us something to build on as, as an industry. And, um, you know, we just got a long, long way to go. I, you know, it's the classic old Chinese proverb, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step type thing. And I think we're still in the early steps of the that the full industry. Like I said, I hats off to the producers the pioneering producers have, have led the way they've got it started. I think, you know, at a principal level, getting this stuff figured out. Right. And, and then, you know, we certainly have way, way, way more non-regenerative producers. So there's, there's more degenerative acres on this earth than there are regenerative, but we're, we're growing uh, the regenerative community pretty good at the moment. But what we need to do is grow the regenerative the rest of that uh, supply chain, including all the way to the consumers, right? We got to get the consumers engaged in this story. Build the bridge between the producers and the consumers. And I, you know, I think you're doing a good, I think you're doing a great thing with blue nest and the, and the bubble links. And, and one thing I like to ask on the podcast is what can everybody do to, to move the lever or keep moving the lever. But I think we've kind of already covered that. Unless there's something else that, uh, you know, 
choose, choose better beef, choose better meat, choose better food, right? Yeah. Like, consumers don't realize, in fact, there's been a lot of people trying to discourage consumers. Oh no, you can't make a difference. You know, you, only the policymakers in Washington can make a difference. Well, policy is important, but in my experience, policy follows. If the consumers wake up and start choosing better beef, and I even tell people, even in the age of Blue Nest, um, you know, find a local farmer, you know, find somebody you can trust, you know, start there, come to us if you don't find a solution there, because, you know, we, you know, our ideal customer is that urban consumer in New York, Miami, Los Angeles, um, they're nowhere near, they don't have the time. And that's where a lot of the population is. So we want to be that solution that makes the right thing, the easy thing. But man, if you can, if you can find a truly regenerative farm in your neighborhood, you need to just go buy direct. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true for your eggs and, and for your meat and your milk, whatever else you can get as much as you can. Um, now it's not as easy as just going to the farmer's market in my experience. Um, and um, indeed, you see quite a bit of variation in quality. So you got to find the optimum that works for, for you. But I think there's way more choices for people today to find that stuff. It was literally when I came back um, from, um, I mentioned, you know, I, my own journey started when I saw Alan Savory talk at TED. And then I, my, my new friend Peter Bick enticed me to come to the first Savory conference in 2013 and then the first CrossFit exchange in 2013. And I came home from those realizing, cause I, I had already kind of stumbled in from the health perspective of this whole grass fed beef thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came home going, oh man, it's just not as simple as buying grass fed at the farmer's market or the grocery store. I, I, no, it's not. It's yeah. not right. And so most people don't understand that. And at the time, I had to go away and do my own research to try to find a space. And it wasn't until I met Jonathan Cobb and Kaylin Cobb at the Grassfoot Exchange that I finally found my lifelong producer. <laughs> uh, until we have Luna. Now, Jonathan's only um, doing lamb now, but we still get our lamb from yeah. Kaylin. And oh my God, I think America would be reinvented if you could taste pastured lamb. I think it's a untapped market um my yeah my my mother-in-law i just picked up lamb when i was in boise with her and we made some chops on the grill and i was like oh it's just so good like i don't i don't understand why people do not love this like yeah, when, when it's done right that's the yeah because feedlot lamb is not good it's got enough no it's got it tastes like it tastes greasy steamy. wool yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's greasy lanolin <laughs> i tell people you need a lot of garlic with lamb yeah Whereas feedlot beef is just bland. Um, well, exactly. That's why they like, like corn. it because you could just flavor it how you like. <laughs> yeah, you do. And now it, feedlot I mean, beef is bland because that animal is not eating a variety of phytochemicals and terpenes. That's, that's exactly right. They're just and, getting energy and roughage and trying to keep them alive <laughs> as long as they can until they get their kill slot. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like. Yeah, exactly. You know, and whereas, you know, we're talking about the regenerative grass fed type system, you know, those animals are out there and they're grazing different plants every day and they're getting those different nano, nano compounds and phytochemicals. And, and there's that bacteria and microbiome exchange between animals and between the grass and between the soil that is totally absent in the feedlot. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, uh, and again, it's a part of that mystery and magic, you know, it's knowable, but it's not known. I mean, I, again, I think with science, 
the, the stuff that Fred's doing with this Dr. Stephen Van Vliet at Duke that you guys may have seen a little bit on where they're getting in and profiling some of the true complexity of the chemical complexity of biochemical complexity of the food. And, and again, it's just, I mean, it's almost laughable that we try to describe food with a couple of, you know, protein, carb, fat, and a couple of key things and think that we've got the whole picture, right? So, and, uh, you know, Fred, um, you know, what he learned by all his observational research working uh, with sheep and goats, mostly, as I'm sure you guys know, was that, you know, you know, they're not distracted by what they read in the New York Times as to what's supposed to be healthy for them. They've got this really finely tuned because it's evolved mechanism between flavor and health that they can connect the dots and eat what's good for them, eat what they need when they need it. Right. It's like ability to self-medicate is just mind blowing, right? With animals. Um, and, you know, I think there's every reason to believe we still have it too. Um, it's just that, you know, we've let our intellect get in the way of good food. I, again, before I discovered regenerative stuff and I just started to discover, you know, whole food again. I mean, I, I grew up in the age of tang and spam and crap macaroni and cheese and all this stuff. I thought that was food, right? I didn't know it was processed crap. And, um, but once I started eating real food again, it's like, oh my God, I mean, my body knew how to recognize it again. You take away the sugar, you take all away the synthetic um, things that are meant to trick your taste buds. And, and you really, um, your, your body goes, Oh, that's what healthy feels. Like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like this is what it feels like to have energy in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I, I even yeah. up, up until I discovered whole food, the only difference in my life was that around age 30, I went from drinking full on Mountain Dew to drinking, drinking diet Mountain Dew. But I was, if, if you would have caught me at work in the business, I was never a coffee guy, but man, I would, I'd be pounding those things down all day long. It was like energy drinks before energy drinks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Brian will remember them. I, I, I was a consumer of diet Mountain Dew in, in yeah. mass quantities. I've never drank regular soda. I've never liked the taste. Like, oh, really? Yeah, like the, 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 the scum it leaves on your teeth. So I've always I, drank diet soda. Yeah. But I'm proud to say I haven't had soda in two weeks. Wow. I'm not I, doing I, so good on the sugar. I had cookies last night, so don't judge me. But Anything in there, it's... I, I can't think that I've had a soda in 10 years now. And I don't really, oh, you're better than us. I, yeah, I no, love I mean, Dr. Pepper. I don't, I just love Dr. Pepper. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dr. Pepper was the other thing that, you know, yeah. here in Texas, it's a big deal. I limit myself to one a day. Like if I have soda, just one. What, what I found it might be a big one, <laughs> like 32, yeah. but just one. Well, here I, I, I drink tea all day long. And I have yeah, like tea. Food. Chamomile tea is my go-to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Chamomile is my bedtime tea. But yeah. I have my little array in the pantry. And so tea's awesome, but I just make tea all day and I enjoy it. Um, I think once you eliminate all that synthetic stuff in your diet, you're, I, as an intellectual, I'm just, I overthink things. It's just kind of who I am. That's okay. Uh, but, Same. Um, Me too. <laughs> you're in good company. Yeah. From an intellectual perspective, I kind of just say, okay, I'm just not going to eat any of the crap stuff. So whatever I'm going to eat is going to be the good stuff. And then I'm going to let my body tell me what it wants. I'm probably not as good at listening to my body as, you know, somebody who's really good at it. But I, I find that, you know, it's much, much, much easier 
um, once you kind of eliminate the crap to, to, to find, find your way to the good stuff and find your way to health. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, we have to relearn how to eat. Our bodies have to relearn what food is. Yeah. It's kind of it, it, by unlearning, um, you know, what we thought we knew. Right. And, and that, that, that's, that's tough for a lot of people. And, um, but once you do it, um, you know, there's no going back. Right. Um, it's really uh, hard. Now I can't say the same thing, by the way, that uh, just so you don't think I'm some sort of saint, uh, had, had some ice cream the other week. Right. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, so there's nothing, it's everything in moderation, even moderation, right, everything in moderation, <laughs> but everything I'm... in variation. <laughs> if you take away my moose tracks, we're going to riot. Oh, like, those are yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you try to take away my moose tracks and, and, and we're going to scrap Mike. but promise you that. Yeah, no. So uh, this, and this is one of the things I like about the regenerative movement as a whole is it's, it, it's got a visionary element to it, but it's a pragmatic, it's got a pragmatic element to it, right? It's not like you, you don't get to be holier in now because you follow some set of rule books. You, you get better because you, try to, you know, observe and watch and interact with your land and interact with your body and uh, all, all these other things. So you, the, the goal is not some false sense of perfection. It's progress. Um, exactly. It's a journey. It's a journey. It's not, soil health is not a destination. It is a journey. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, even with the carbon stuff, I, I do worry that we think it's a destination. We think soil health is all about stock and it's carbon. We're going to put it in a number and we're going to get paid for it. And I, I would love to find viable, sustainable, legitimate, authentic ways that farmers can earn extra revenue for the genuinely good services they're providing for the world, right. bird habitat or carbon or water infiltration. Um, but I, I think I worry like a lot of people that done poorly, it opens up doorways for crooks and uh, corruption and other things like that. So it, it, it's an area where we all have to walk um, tenderly together and, and learn on um, how this stuff's gonna gonna work, but I, I couldn't be more convinced. Uh, you know, back to that thing I mentioned um, uh, that I've uh, that I've mentioned before about in, in order to see the kind of the big picture, you kind of zoom all the way out to the edge of the atmosphere. Once you've seen that um, regenerative agriculture is as certain to be true as an apple falling from a tree. Um, it's it's like gravity. It's anchored in the first principles about how the planet works, um, if you understand it right. It is inevitable. It is inevitable Absolutely. in some way. In fact, you know, even a broader way to say it would be if if we don't figure out how to participate in nature's ecosystems that make this planet healthier, nature will select us out of the system. Yes. Um, yes. Just like it has every other species. Now, it may not happen to you or me or even our grandchildren, but it will happen um, because that's that is the fundamental force that's driving the system is again how to increase the planet's ability to capture the incoming solar energy and we our choice in my view is we either help it happen or we go away yep. <laughs> uh, in, in time one way or another by some path and maybe we're replaced by artificial robots that are solar powered that do it better than we could <laughs> i don't know but, but um, somebody's some still got a mine all the things to build the robot and somebody's got to build the robot. Yeah. The robots can build the mines and the robots and so on. But at the end of the day, what I tell you is that the energy is an energy guy. 
the energy is only coming from one of two places, the sunshine that's coming in or the mass that's already here. Um, and the mass that's already here gets pretty complicated. It's kind of ha handy to have the mass part of the energy thing, which means nuclear, um, billions of miles away um, from us. And, and all we get is the radiation that comes from that. Uh, right. But not the bad, not all the bad radiation. But not the bad radiation, right? And, it, and the Earth has evolved in a way, right, that it has even the atmospheric constituency that moderates that for life on Earth. So, um, you know, in my view, our choice as a civilization in time is how to shift from an economy that's been driven primarily based on stored sunshine from millions of years ago to an economy that works in harmony with concurrent sunshine that is flowing in every day. Um, and that's really what's, you know, going on with regenerative agriculture and why I say, you know, when farmers figure out how they can capture a little bit more of that incoming sunshine next year than last year, then, then we know we're gonna be taking the planet in the right direction. Um, so, I, I realize that it's kind of abstract for people, but like I said, to me, it's as obvious as an apple falling from a tree. It's anchored in first principles of physics. And I think the farmers are the engineers and operators that are making that happen on landscapes. And the rest of us are just here to make the rest of the system work. But the farmers are the ones that really are in the position to drive the bus. That's great. So I want to shift gears and uh, let's talk a little bit about Let's talk a little bit about grass-fed exchange. What you got planned for uh, GFX yeah. 2021? Well, 2021, we're still all virtual. Uh, there okay. was a point where we'd hoped to pull off the physical conference again this year, but we gave up on that last fall. The next physical conference will be May 18th to the 20th of 2022, so mm -hmm. over a year from now. And we will be back in Fort Worth, Texas, at the yes. place we're supposed to be. I'm so uh, excited. Yeah, yeah. It's the Will Rogers Coliseum, which is, um, you know, the iconic home of the Fort Worth Livestock Show and Rodeo. Yes. And, you know, and of course, Fort Worth is one of the original cow towns. And um, it's just so exciting to be there where we can get together. It's kind of in the center of the country where people can come from anywhere, drive, fly. They even have a train that goes from the airport right to the hotel. Yeah, it's so close. Yeah. It, it's mm -hmm. really convenient now that... Um, so we're, we're, we're very excited. Uh, we just uh, decided our theme for the conference here a couple of weeks ago, Rooted in Wisdom. Oh, I love that. Um, and so we're very excited to, we're now starting to build that agenda of speakers um, that, that will um, allow us to explore what's relevant um, in that topic. We've already got farm tours uh, set up um, that pretty much remain in place from what we the last time yeah and had to put it all on hold so um yeah but it's it, it's a it's a venue that's pretty unique um it's going to allow us the, the biggest we've ever been able to do a grass-fed exchange and keep the sense of community you, you know we don't want to do a conference where you sit in an auditorium and look at the back of the head of someone in front of you yeah, um, we want to do a conference where people can look at each other, talk to each other, learn from each other, and the 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 Will Rogers Coliseum gives us a venue where we can have enough space to have about seven hundred people in the main hall, um, which is you know like in Santa Rosa we had about five hundred was the most we could fit, and that was pretty tight. Um, 
and but you know we'll have livestock exhibitions we got a really big exhibit hall where we're trying to cook up some ideas for different kinds of demonstrations we're going to do we're going to have a live butchery demonstration to help farmers see how they can I love that field dressing um, Mm -hmm. do some things with differently with butchery to meet consumer needs um so you know all pretty darned excited and meanwhile um you know we're kind of doing some uh interim things we um like many people, we decided that the thing we missed about the conference, honestly, wasn't the PowerPoint presentations. It was the opportunity to just have conversations with folks in the hallways. So we started here in the fall with a series we call the hallway conversations. Um, and no scripts, no PowerPoints, just a couple of people getting together, hosting a Zoom call like we're doing now. And then, you know, having other people chime in and uh, ask questions via chat and you know, talk for about an hour and then get back to work. So that that was almost our original concept for it this. Was. It was. Yeah. It, it, it kind of was. And then we just got to the point where CK and I were like, let's just do a podcast. I was like, do we do office hours? Like, do we just, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but that right. sounded like too, like back in college type deal. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like podcasts. Let's, let's just do a podcast. It is, it is yeah. easier to do live, but not in the age of Zoom, it's easier. I mean, fire up zoom you port it over to facebook live and if people want to watch on facebook they can and then it's automatically recorded for people to come back and watch later on facebook yes um but um you know it it helps keep the community um engaged um talking about real things um that you know to me the grass-fed exchange is you know Officially, it's an educational foundation, but it's not an educational foundation that has a textbook that's trying to teach you something that somebody documented. We're trying to bring in thought leaders that are doing interesting things, whether it's the practice of production or processing or marketing or science or whatever. You know, let's talk about whatever's, you know, hot and relevant today. So, um, it, it, it's been fun. I, I, and I think, you know, we'll keep doing that and hopefully I'll build a little bit of an on-ramp so that when we do get together in person next May again, um, you know, we, we will have continued to build that community and keep it, keep it going and, and, and so on. So you, after it's a, a huge... year of COVID lockdown and yeah, conference season being gonna go. <laughs> canceled last year, canceled this year, You'll sell out quick. I'll be there. I think so. You're going to, um, maybe I'll have to, maybe you'll save me a ticket. In fact, for what it's worth, I'm not, I should have mentioned it. One of the things that was designed in from um, 2020 that we absolutely intend to retain, we haven't uh, yet confirmed uh, the details, but instead of having a banquet speaker, like we typically have at the Grassfit Exchange, we decided to have a regeneration festival. Uh, and at this regeneration festival, we've got a, a old country uh, folk band set up to play fun music and do a little square dancing and have some Texas yeah. barbecue and sure you we know, can't get just, Willie Nelson. Yeah, if we can get <laughs> Willie to come, that'd be pretty awesome, right? Because he has a regenerative place, so he does. Yeah. You know, I'm pinging for you guys. Yeah, <laughs> is he a pasture map customer? We're trying to get him on. So Willie, if you hear this, yeah, <laughs> if you, I'll give if it you to need, you for free. <laughs> if he needs somebody to come come consult and help him set up and learn how to use it. CK and I can, you know, we'd be happy to come out and do on-site consulting, right? Yep. And then we'll get him on grass-fed exchange. He'll love, 
I love it. Oh, it's it's just it's awesome. I mean, as you guys know, the Grassroot Exchange community is so awesome. It's made up of giving, caring people from all around the country and all around the world now, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so awesome to watch, you know, young people that are getting started or, or old people that want to change be able to talk and just compare notes with, you know, people that might be iconic uh, people in one way or another and just, you know, learn. And, you know, even the sense of humility in the community where it's not at all uncommon to talk to people, even, you know, have people talking on the main stage, I tried this and it didn't work. It went badly. <laughs> you know, we, you know, it's a warts and all type community. Um, and that's why it's such a wonderful learning community that, that um, you know, it's just honest people trying to do better, not, you know, sell you a, uh, you know, a bag of goods of some kind. So it's awesome. So yeah, we're excited. We'll keep the hallway conversation thing going, but um, yeah, I, I'm glad to think, I'm glad to hear you think we'll sell out quickly. Cause uh, I think so too. And it's also huge. Like I remember when Pastor Map was involved in the California one, just cause we were from San Francisco, right. yeah. it was so much work we, we helped you with. So if yeah. you guys need support from us again, let us oh, know awesome. because I don't think everyone realizes how much work it takes to yeah. pull that off. Yeah. So Absolutely true. And in Fort Worth, we've got some, you know, easier things to work with. Just it, it helps to be in a big city. Logistics wise. Logistics yeah. Wise and so on. So even getting people back and forth and around to airports and things like that and food was complicated. I remember helping, uh, get the sandwiches ready to go out on the tours, right? You know, you're working, but we've got a, We've, we've got a caterer um, set up that when we sat down and started working on details with them and talked about our size, you know, we're, we're, we're tiny compared to what they normally They're, Yeah, it's a destination, right? So right. not to say Sonoma's not, but I think Fort Worth is... It, it's is, a different kind of destination, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I, I think we're going to be in really um, good hands overall here. And um, in, indeed, it's going to be a hell of a dance um, when, when we were able to... Uh, pull that off and get people back together again. So May 18th through the 20th next year. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm, I'm writing to. that yeah. down. May yeah. 18 to 20. Yeah. So Russ, I, I really appreciate the time. Have we left anything on the table today that you need to, you want to tell us about? My brain is fried. Um, you know, typically all the time. <laughs> no, I mean, we're, um, but it is after five on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had some, uh, you know, Casey Kasem type thing that probably dates me or, you know, uh, keep your feet on the ground, but keep reaching for the stars. I think that's kind of, you know, when I was a kid, he was a radio DJ and he signed off every night that way or every week. Uh, and, I, and I'm old enough to know who he was. Oh yeah. Good, 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 good. Well, I, you know, and I think that's where regenerative ag is at now, right? You know, we literally keep our feet on the ground, right? And uh, soil is the foundation of everything, right? I, uh, I, I just marvel at soil. It's so way more interesting than petroleum reservoirs that I grew up with, you know. Um, and um, you know, we think we don't know much about food, but we don't know a lot about soil. But we know some big picture things, and we appreciate that this is the fundamental thing where you know, all life gets connected. Here, here's another factoid for you to, um, to, you know, geek out 
with with me on 70% of the sunshine falls on the oceans, but 70% of the sunlight gets converted on land by a photosynthesis. And the reason that is, is because of soil. Soil um, is a, this underground ecosystem that matches nutrients with um, life that helps that life grow in a way that's much, much harder to do in the ocean. So life started in the ocean because it was easy. There was plenty of water and um, things get started, but you notice life crawled onto land and kept going. It didn't go the other way around. When it got on land, it got way more complex. Yeah, and it got way more complex, right? And I think I think it really is regenerative agriculture here. You know, we're we're still doing that, but we're back to the soil, right? That's the foundation of this stuff. If we get that right, um, then you know everything else can flow. And we, the animals, the plants, we're all just a part of this system that makes it work. And when we do work together, you know, we get healthy food that's really tasty, and um, you know, we're all super happy. Um, and you know, there's health and, you know, I, 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 I hope for a future where everybody can go 10 years without going to the pharmacy. Um, right. And I think that starts with healthy soil and healthy producers mm-hmm. producing healthy food. And then other participants in, a, in an economy that can help get that healthy food to consumers. So, um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's exciting times. I, I feel like the movement's come a long way since I started, but I feel like we're just getting started. Right. So this whole regenerative ag thing is, you know, hopefully something that keeps going and, and, and going and going for a long time. So anyhow, pleasure talking to you. We, we hope the wave of regeneration continues. And, you know, I think CK and I have been here for, been here with our surfboards and we've been paddled out and we're just waiting and waiting for that right wave to come. And I think that, yep. I think yeah. we're there and that's a great place to end. It is. Russ, I really we we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us. CK, anything else? No, this has been great. I love the I love the context around how why we choose to eat regeneratively. So I think that was piece of I was missing it in how I explained to my friends. So I'm gonna as soon as this publishes, I'm gonna send them this podcast. But this is why you should eat differently. <laughs> awesome. All right, CK Brian, great talking with you again. Thanks again, Russell, and enjoy the rest of your day. All right. That sure was a great conversation with Russ, and I've had a lot of great conversations with him over the last couple of years. I'm really looking forward to Grass-Fed Exchange in 2022, being able to reconnect with a lot of you folks in person. As a special bonus, Russ has given me a code for the Bobo links we talked about in, during the episode. That's Bobo Reboot. So B-O-B-O Reboot or I think it's uh, 10% off your first order of Bobo Links for Blue Nest Beef. So be sure to go check those out. Use the code so they know where you heard it. And as always, guys, we'll be back next Monday with another episode of Ranching Reboot, trying to bring you guys great content on schedule. Give us a like, follow, share, subscribe. Listen to us on your favorite podcast platform, and make sure you tell our friends about us. And with that, I'm out of here. Red Hills Rancher, out.